3: On this episode of News World, my guest today is perhaps best known for firing the shots that killed Osama bin Laden in Abbottabad, Pakistan on May 2, 2011 as a member of SEAL Team 6. But that one particular mission has perhaps overshadowed his incredible life of service to our country. He served almost 17 years in the U.S. Navy, having survived Navy SEAL Bud's training at the age of 20 And then going on to become part of SEAL Team 2, SEAL Team 4, and SEAL Team 6. He's served in over 400 combat missions in Liberia, the Balkans, the Persian Gulf, the Indian Ocean, Ukraine, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. He is the recipient of 53 decorations, including two Silver Stars, four Bronze Stars of Valor, a Joint Service Commendation Medal of Valor, Joint Service Achievement Medal of Valor, and three presidential unit citations. And he's joining me today to discuss his new book, which he co-authored with fellow veteran Dakota Meyer, The Way Forward, Master Life's Toughest Battles and Create Your Lasting Legacy. Rob and Dakota describe candidly stories about their lives, the impact of war, and the emotional toll that men and women of the military go through when they return home from battle. I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Robert O'Neill. Rob, thank you for joining me.
4: Thank you for having me today, Mr. Speaker. It's great to be with you.
3: You have had an incredible life. You grew up in Montana, you played basketball, and then you go from Montana to the Navy. What attracted you? It was sort of
4: one of those things in life where you get to a certain age. People say, I just got to get out of here. It doesn't matter where here is. For me, it was Butte, Montana. I've run into people in Virginia and California that have just said the same things. It's just time to get out of here. It was topped off by a bad relationship. I got dumped by a girl and I stopped playing college basketball and I went to join the Marine Corps because I had friends that were in the Marine Corps. And as luck would have it, the Marine wasn't in the office. The Navy guy was. And, you know, he asked me why I wanted to be there. And I said, I want to be a sniper. Marines have the best Snipers in the world. And he said, Look no further. We have snipers in the Navy. And he said, You need to become a Navy SEAL first. He sort of brushed over that part because being from Montana, I really didn't know how to swim. But he talked me into it. I figured I'll give this a go. And I saw some videos after I signed the paperwork, of course. I shipped off to Great Lakes, Illinois for boot camp and then to San Diego for basic underwater demolition SEAL training.
3: So you're in San Diego and you graduate in 97. This is a legendary part of the American system. What is SEAL training like? Well, SEAL training is
4: 28 weeks from start to finish, but there's a few weeks to months before that that they call preparation, but it's just more beatings, more runs on the beach, more push-ups. It's a thousand push-ups a day, a thousand sit-ups a day, hundreds and hundreds of pull-ups a day, running everywhere, calisthenics, obstacle courses, things like that. But a standard day would be make sure you're at what we call the grinder, which is an outdoor concrete slab at 5 a.m. With a full head count. They don't baby you. You be here at this time. That'll be an hour of calisthenics pull ups, everything like that. Even on the grinder on Four Corners, there are big boats full of ice water just to let you know that even we're in Southern California, I can keep you as cold as I want. Then you're done with that. You run a mile to breakfast and then a mile back. So you run six miles a day just to eat. And in between breakfast and lunch, it's everything from a conditioning run, which can be five to seven miles, dry off, and then a two mile ocean swim run back to lunch, run back more calisthenics, more obstacle courses, run to the pool. And then at the pool evolutions, you're doing everything from just lap swims to getting your hands tied behind your back and your feet together, getting thrown in for an hour doing that. And they're doing a lot of drills like that. The point of getting tied up and thrown in the water is through negative reinforcement, it's teaching you that panicking is not going to help you. So don't panic, just stay calm. And they're teaching you stuff like that. But it's basically... You wake up at 4 in the morning, you go to bed by 11 p.m., and then you do it again the next day, and that's 28 weeks. And at the first part, a few weeks in, it's called Hell Week, when they wake you up on Sunday, and then you do not sleep until Friday. You're awake the entire time. They're teaching you, it's called team building, where you have a, they call it a boat crew of seven men, and you carry a boat on your head everywhere you go now. Everything you do now, there's a boat on your head bouncing all over the place. You're awake the whole time, and then that's over. And then it's by no means the training over. You continue on. It's a long course where about 80% of the people that try out don't make it through.
3: I like the phrase that the Navy wants to make sure you're worth investing in because SEAL operational training is so expensive. And Hell Week is a good way to get down to the ones who are going to survive it.
4: Yeah, that's true too. And Normally they're telling you that you're never going to make it through. It was after Hell Week where I remember an instructor said, now you need to remember this, that I'm teaching when you get to your platoon, which most of you will now because you finished Hell Week. And it's sort of registered, even though there's a lot to go. It's like, wow, they're going to sort of believe in us. And you lose the majority of the class. After Hell Week, most of the guys will make it through training and make it to a SEAL team.
3: I'm curious, you mentioned earlier because you're from Montana. At what point did you learn how to swim?
4: I didn't ship out the day that I signed. I had a few weeks. I was playing college basketball in Montana Tech, and I still had my student ID, which meant I could sneak in to the building and use their pool. And my wife, even to this day, calls me the luckiest unlucky man in the world, because I was in there trying to swim one day, and I realized I'm in a lot of trouble. I can't even get to one end of the pool. And a friend of mine from high school who ended up swimming at Notre Dame, he came in and goes, don't take this the wrong way. It's great to see you, but I've literally never seen you in the pool. What gives that? And I said, oh, I just joined the Navy and I'm going to be a SEAL. He said, no, not like that. You're not. And so he taught me the breaststroke and the side stroke enough where I could train on it until I shipped out. And then I would find times in a little bit of Navy training to get in the pool. I would even get over to where they would give the test to get into SEAL training and take that twice a week just so I could swim that 500 yards. I thought I was proficient until I got to SEAL training where there's collegiate water polo players. There's guys that swam for the Naval Academy there. And it's like, okay... This will be the reason I don't make it is I'll fail a swim, but I'm not going to quit. I can't quit. So were you
3: at all tempted to quit during hell week?
4: I was tempted to quit pretty much every day. And that's just how it is. It's just getting beyond that. It's like the whole bravery is not the absence of fear. It's the ability to recognize fear and then push it aside and keep doing it. Do it anyway. The best advice I got was from an instructor that as soon as we got there, he said, I know you've seen the movies or read the books, regardless of what you've been told, this course is not impossible. People graduate. Look at me. I am living proof. So I will never ask you to do anything impossible. But I will make you do something very hard. Followed by something very hard. Followed by something very hard. Day after day after day for eight straight months. And that sounds like a lot to get from now to eight months from now. But don't think about it that way. That is not how you achieve a long-term goal. I want you to do it like this. Wake up in the morning on time. Make your bed the right way and then brush your teeth. You just started the day with three wins. That's three victories. Make it to the 5 a.m. workout on time. And as I'm beating, you don't think about the pain. You concentrate on your next goal in life, which is breakfast. After breakfast, your next goal is lunch. After lunch, make it to dinner. After dinner, do everything you need to do to get back inside that perfectly made bed. And Because you took the time in the morning to make your bed the right way, regardless of how bad today was, and it will be bad, tomorrow's a clean slate and a fresh start. And when you feel like quitting, which you will, do not quit right now. That's emotion. Quit tomorrow. If you can keep quitting tomorrow, you can do anything in life.
3: Which is actually a pretty good starting point for your book. I mean, what a great lesson to remind every entrepreneur and every person who'd like to be successful. Now, I'm curious because I didn't realize this, but when you finish training as a SEAL, you then go to the U.S. Army Jump School.
4: Yeah. After basic SEAL training, you go to Army Jump School. We did it in my time. Now, they've kind of streamlined it to where it's in-house and they have everybody ready to be a SEAL when you get to your team. But before we even got to our teams, before we were even Navy SEALs, they sent us to Army Airborne. Which was awesome. It was incredible for me because that's my first experience working with the Army. And all I'd known was, well, Navy to this point and then SEAL training. And I'd only seen Army in like on TV or movies. And so I got to see the Army. And like these are young soldiers, they get to see Navy for the first time. And it was a really cool experience.
3: Where did you take your airborne training?
4: Fort Benning, Georgia.
3: Yeah, that's how I got to be a Georgian. My dad was there. My dad spent 27 years in the infantry. That's right. I knew that. And he actually went airborne when he was a grandfather. Seriously. Oh, yeah. He decided he had to prove to himself he could do it. <laughs> After it was over, he turned to me and said, first time I'm going up, I'm sitting in this plane. And I'm thinking, this plane's going to land. <laughs> Why am I jumping out of it? Yeah, that's true. But by that stage, I was in. So
4: And we ended up doing so much jumping. When I got to SEAL Team 6, I probably got over 1,000 jumps. And we're always training on, because we assumed the Bin Laden raid was going to be skydiving in. And one of my sayings was, hey, guys, don't worry. No matter how bad it goes up there, you're going to land.
3: <laughs> That's right. So
4: it's, you know, take that with a grain of salt.
3: Okay. So, but then after you've had all that training, when you actually get to the SEAL team, you get advanced training for another six to nine months.
4: Yeah, we did. It was actually close to a year, a lot of training. We went diving in Puerto Rico. We did land warfare in Virginia. You finish a few of those courses. Then there's a probationary period of, of drills and exercises and observations and then a oral board. And then you become a Navy SEAL. So from start to finish, it took me two years to earned the insignia for Naval Special Warfare, which is the Trident. Then I became a SEAL. Then they put us into a group that's called a Platoon, and that was 16 guys, 14 enlisted, two officers. That group works together for a full year, and then you deploy. So I guess I deployed a little over two years after I joined as a Navy SEAL, and we went to Europe because it was pre-9-11, so we were looking for stuff here and there. There was Bosnia, Kosovo, Liberia, stuff like that.
3: I'm actually very impressed. You ended up with 11 different areas that you're qualified for, you know, from military, free fall, jump master on down the list. So you really can lead and train in a very diverse range of capabilities.
4: Right. And that was my goal that ended up paying off. I wanted to be proficient, try to be able to do everything. So instead of taking some vacations or some family time, I would volunteer for the tandem course or go to sniper school or become a master naval parachutist. And it turned out to be in the long run, you know, 16 years later, when they picked the team to go to Bin Laden's house, they wanted redundancy. So everybody had this call, this call, this call, this call. So if we lose one helicopter, the other 12 guys have every single qualification that they wanted and it paid off. I mean, I don't know where to give credit, but somebody said, wherever you are, be there.
2: Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.
0: I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now, I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: You served in SEAL Team 2, SEAL Team 4. And then eight years at SEAL Team Six, which is the most famous. Culturally, what's the difference in the three SEAL teams?
4: We call them the conventional teams, and they're split up by number. Odd numbers are in California SEAL Team One, Three, Five, Seven at my time, and then Two, Four, Eight, and Ten were in Virginia. And Six is in Virginia. And the only reason this is actually fitting for right now when it first was formed, there was SEAL Team One in California, SEAL Team Two in Virginia, and then Richard Marcinko founded SEAL Team 6 because he knew the Russians would look at it and say, okay, there's 1, 2, and 6. Where the hell are 3, 4, and 5? So 6 was just smart. That's just really good logical, tactical thinking. So 6 became the counter-terror team, the Tier 1 unit for the Navy. And that's where the senior guys went. That's where the counter-terror team was. It just sort of worked out. 2 and 4 were just kind of there, and I did screen to get to SEAL Team 6 because 9-11 had just happened, and these were guys now – You know, we thought we were doing stuff before, but these are the guys that went into Afghanistan first, along with Delta and and some of the three-letter agency guys. And we knew they were getting in the fight. And this is real stuff, real mountains, real combat with Al-Qaeda. If you want to really get into it. And again, what a great military we are. We don't know how long this is going to last. So if you want to fight, you got to get over there. That was my thinking to go over to SEAL Team 6.
3: So in a way, is SEAL Team 6 the Navy counterpart to Delta Force?
4: Yeah, they're the two counterterrorism units, Yes. And we work quite a bit together. I mean, I can't say enough good about them.
3: Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's amazing to go down to their training at Bragg. I've
4: been there. I was at of 6, and I went to Delta's compound, and I remember being starstruck. Like, oh, oh, wow, this is like Chuck Norris stuff now.
3: When I was down there years ago, they had this plastic box you could see in that was clear plastic that had the 44,000 rounds that a single Delta operator had fired in training. And you looked at this... You began to think, these guys are really serious.
4: Oh, yeah. We shoot a lot. What's nice about the Tier 1 units is you kind of get what you need. And the commanders are great senior leaders that are going to get you what you can get just to make sure you're ready for it. And just being ready for it. We didn't know what it was going to be until 9-11. And it's like, well, here's what we're doing. You know, we've been training in the water and the jungle forever. Now guess what? We're going to the mountains.
3: Yeah. It's very interesting because when you get to these first-rate teams, the British had the same experience. They had one of their special groups was actually, I think, and Brunei doing jungle warfare when the Falkland Islands came down, and they literally were changing clothes between the jungle they'd been fighting in and going to the South Atlantic. Because they trained so much, they just switched. And I think we're seeing with some of the problems that the Russians are having right now, it doesn't matter how much equipment you have, if you don't have training and your team hasn't been operational and it doesn't practice all the time, you're going to have a real problem. Because combat's really complicated.
4: They're learning that right now. It's like they're learning what happens when you run out of food and fuel. Nobody thought of that. What happens when, okay, we're going to blow up the cell towers. Now we don't have comms. What are we supposed to do? And once you start losing the stuff that we consider comforts, morale takes a dive. And when morale's low, nothing's going to work.
3: That's right. Well, so we've had sort of the opposite approach. And I noticed that in 2005, you were part of the rescue for Operation Rendwing, which extracted the lone survivor, Marcus Luttrell. And that's an example of where we're so different because we take the life of one person really seriously and we mount an entire operation to get them back home. What did it feel like when you realized this guy is going to live because we came in and got him?
4: Well, it was a complete emotion up and down. I'd known most of those guys. I knew Dan Healy, who died on the helicopter, went through sniper school with him a few years prior. I saw him the night before he died. And we were talking about Sam Adams, talking about beer and all this stuff. And then the next day, the helicopter goes down. We knew the snipers were inserting. And then we'd always had these cards that have like your picture and then stuff only you would know about yourself. Like my first car was this color of a whatever. And that's the first time I saw Marcus. And we're like, well, we got to get this guy. That's when I saw the might of... Not just special forces, but the American military. We had everybody. We had Navy SEALs, Rangers, there's Green Berets, Marines, Air Force guys, and walking up the mountain wondering what our families are thinking back home because no one's heard from us, it happened so fast. But to watch the entire mission just stop for a while. We were going after Matt Axelson and Marcus Luttrell. We did find Axelson, he was killed. But then just to know what everybody did, I was awake for a few days on the mountain, and we were going down into the valley when Rangers came in, and they pulled Marcus out. And it was just a feeling of pride of everyone from the female A-10 pilots that came in on runs to shoot at Taliban, which is incredible, to the pilots that are flying the helicopters, the Rangers that got out. You're in a spot where a helicopter had just been shot down and we lost everybody on it. You're going to still go in and get one guy. And they got him. At that point, it was obviously tragic to lose so many great Americans, but they pulled Marcus out. And it was, we can do this.
3: Well, and the fact that we care enough to come get you, I think, strengthens the morale of everybody.
4: Oh, definitely does. They're not being left behind. And we'd been saying that forever, No Man Left Behind, but not since Mogadishu have we really proven it like that. Edmund Jessica Lynch.
3: So, you were also part of the mission to rescue Captain Richard Phillips when his boat was hijacked. And I think that became a movie. What was that experience like? And when were you called into that mission?
4: I got called in from Virginia. It was my birthday. It was Good Friday, April 10th, 2009. And I was at my daughter's Easter tea party at her preschool. And so we were getting treats for the kids. We thought it would be cute to put the kids in the center of the room. We'll get treats and bring them back. And I had a pink plate in my hand and I'm walking cookies and smiley face cupcakes to my daughter and I get a message. We were using pagers at the time and I recognize the code. Captain Phillips, they're calling you to go get him now. So my team is getting called to go get him right now. SEAL Team 6 was designed to rescue American hostages at sea. It had never been done. This is over 25 years, not once. And we'd been selling that by the time we get the call, in a certain amount of hours, we'll be wheels up. And we'll be anywhere in the world in 24 hours. And we trained on it, but never done it. Everything you need is there. And so everything from the boats, having the parachutes backed in by the CVs onto the C-17s that had just been flown up by the Air Force. I remember the commanding officer was on there. He's looking at his watch and we're like 59 minutes and we're counting up. Like at 55 seconds to the hour, we're wheels up. So he gets the color back in his face, gets to keep his job and now we're taking off. And we had thought as a team, even before I got there, we had thought of everything, everything from cruise liners to yachts, to submarines, how to rescue. We had never thought of a fully engulfed orange lifeboat being towed by a Navy destroyer. So we've got a certain amount of hours and we're just looking at everyone. All right, think of something. We'll make a list. We'll start crossing off the bad ones, whatever one we get to, that's what we're going to do when we get there. And we had no idea what we're going to do. We came up with some plans. We ended up jumping into the USS Boxer. We stayed from there in the movie. There were snipers on the back of the ship that took shots after 3 2, one execute. That's not what happened. And we didn't jump in there to kill those guys. We put snipers down to watch them, make sure nothing unsafe happens in that boat as we prepare for the rescue. As we're preparing for the rescue, something unsafe happened. And they shot without telling each other, but they took the shots. And what's cool about that, we're talking about logistics earlier. These three snipers were in their own beds in Virginia four days before this. And we'd never done this in over 25 years. It's a long weekend. We could skip work and drink beer, and they could sight in their guns on Tuesday. So their guns did not need to be sighted in for the most difficult shots of their lives, but their guns were sighted in for the most difficult shots of their lives. And that's just how cool these guys were.
3: So then, of course, the most famous thing you were involved in was Operation Neptune Spear to go in and get bin Laden, which I think was frankly probably as gutsy a decision as President Obama made because there were some people who wanted to just go in and bomb the place and they kept pointing out, yeah, and then you'll never know for sure. And if you don't know for sure, he'll remain a legend. And so you guys were sent in to Pakistan without having told the PACs at a time when there was a real danger that the Pakistanis would react negatively. And you pulled it off. But part of that was, as I understand it, controversial because there was a sense that you should not have discussed the mission or talked about, you know, what you did on the mission, but it was more complicated than that, as I understand it. So what was the whole circumstance of just your describing the mission?
4: Well, when we got in, we got them. Obviously, everything went wrong, but people did what they were supposed to do, and we got out. And when we got back, I remember thinking, you know, we're going to be the best friends forever, this team. We went to get debrief. We saw President Obama say that tonight that I can report to the American people of the world of the United States conducted conduct an operation to kill Osama bin Laden. Uh, then we went to shower up and we went to a spot where we could have a cigar and check our email and the name SEAL Team 6 was all over everything. We didn't realize that and that's when the discomfort started. We all thought we were going to take that to our graves. We got back and... That's a secret that no one could keep. Everyone already knew what happened because even when we we're overseas, someone would say, well, who got them? And they'd be like, well, don't say anything. That kind of spread that way. By the time we got back to Virginia, my name personally was in Virginia Beach, California, D.C. and New York. And it just sort of spread from there. And then I decided eventually it's time to get out. Well, after extortion, 17 was shot down August 6th. We lost 31 Americans. I did one more deployment with SEAL Team 6 over to Afghanistan. And I told them on the deployment, I'm going to get out. I got out. This is long story short stuff. And I donated a shirt to the 9-11 Museum Memorial anonymously. But when I was given the shirt, there was 30 so families in a room where they wanted me to tell them what happened. They had all had loved ones die on, you know, the worst day of American history, basically. I told them the bin Laden story for the first time, and I could see their response. And what they told me is, you know, there will never be closure, but this helps with the healing to have a real name and a real face with this mission, and I decided, well, if I can help them, I can probably help thousands of other people, and so I decided to get a transcript together and submit it through the Pentagon, through the chain of command, because I've always thought, if you have something you want to tell anything in the military, submit it, do it the right way. The powers that be will decide from each department whether or not you're violating tactics or putting anyone in danger, and if not, and you have a story to tell, you know, you can tell it, and that's kind of what I went through with everything from when my speaking career started. I wouldn't talk about the Bin Laden raid until the book was approved. My name got leaked long before I wrote a book, and it's some of those things where you need to be prepared for. I had been training my daughters since I was in the Navy. We're talking four years old, how to take their ticket in an airport, find where you're flying, which gate to go to, just in case someone comes up to me, I can meet you there. And we were in an airport, I think it was Charlotte, when my name leaked, and it was everywhere, and I was not even used to the limelight, and they knew right away, they had scarves everywhere, put them over their face, and they met me at the gate, and I had to find a place close enough to Virginia where they lived where their mom could pick them up. But, yeah, I mean, it's a very abridged version. But, you know, I'm happy that everyone in the American military history in the past had a biographer with them. I'm glad it was approved. I'm glad they told the story so we can learn from it.
3: Yeah, I think that's an important part of it. And the raid itself, I mean, it was, in fact, a close run thing because didn't we lose one of the helicopters going in and that the way it ended up hitting the wall? Yeah, that was
4: because of one of the pilots. He decided to do that. Now, I'm not a pilot, but he explained some sort of effect with an updraft, and we'd been training on chain-link fences, not the mud walls. And he felt something, however pilots, you know, pilots are amazing. They don't get enough credit nearly. He felt something that he said a junior pilot would have tried to power up, and that would have rolled it. He knew if he turned it, he could probably put the tail on the fence and pin it into the ground. And he made this decision that fast, and he saved everyone's lives in the helicopter. And the only reason I got to where I was – is because our pilots, I was supposed to go to the roof with my team. This pilot saw him, and then he put us down. And without telling us, he's just saying, it's time to go from here. And that's the whole thing that life happens around you while you're planning for something else.
3: Yeah, and that's part of why you need the training. Oh, definitely. Is so that you can instinctively react and know what you're doing. You need to be prepared.
4: That's why it's very important, I think, no matter what you're doing, master the basics. Just master the basics. If you want to be good, do something a thousand times. If you want to be really good, do it 10,000 times.
2: Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.
1: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast
2: is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board.
1: This is Uncanny USA.
5: He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... (laughs)
1: Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.
3: You wrote a New York Times best-selling book called The Operator, firing the shots that killed Osama bin Laden, and My Years as a SEAL Team Warrior. But then, talking with Dakota Meyer, you had a whole new approach to taking the lessons you've learned out of life and offering them up in a way that people can learn for their own lives. This new book, The Way Forward, Master Life's Toughest Battles and Create Your Lasting Legacy. First of all, what led you to decide to write it?
4: Well, Dakota and I have been friends for a long time. It all started off with a conversation of how did a dude that couldn't swim from Montana end up at SEAL Team 6 in Bin Laden's bedroom? And how did a guy who played football but was also a male cheerleader raising chickens end up a Medal of Honor recipient for a horrible hand-to-hand fight in Afghanistan? Then all of a sudden we're in the limelight. We started to realize that we're all kind of cut from the same cloth, that we all start somewhere and we end up going somewhere. And the only thing that we have in common is the clock keeps ticking. So if you hold a grudge, the only person you're hurting is yourself. So don't live in the past, learn from the past, and then whatever it is, get over it and move forward. And we started talking about that. Even like the CEO of a major company has had his first day, and he kept moving forward. It's even like when I get interviewed now, they'll say, so former Navy SEAL, and they'll say, oh, sorry, once a Navy SEAL, always a Navy SEAL. I'll say, no, I was a Navy SEAL, and now I'm not. I was in high school, but I'm not a high school student. You keep moving forward. You know, as much as fun as like Napoleon Dynamite is, and everybody loves Uncle Rico, you can't keep living about how if coach would have put me in now what do we do? What's the way forward? And we started talking about, and it gets pretty deep as far as one of my sayings in the book is, it's a large planet, but it's a small world. Meaning we all have a lot in common. And as far as a combat vet, the further I get away from combat, and Dakota's the same way, the more it means. And we start thinking about some of the guys that we've killed. We didn't even know each other. I don't know this guy. He doesn't know me. And now we're fighting because we're born on different parts of the earth. And then you get deeper in your own soul. Like, Okay, if I didn't meet him in Ramadi, Iraq, and we met in a coffee shop in France, would we have had a laugh together? And it just really gets kind of deep. And it's almost like a humanity thing. Like no one ever thinks they're the bad guy. So I think a lot of us, other than what we're taught, we have a lot more in common as people than we realize.
3: Well, I mean, I noticed, though, that you start the book with an analogy of the simple instructions for a Claymore mine. First of all, tell people what a Claymore mine is.
4: So a Claymore mine is an anti-personnel mine, and it's kind of concave. And there's C4, which is a high explosive, 800 ball bearings. And the way it's designed is once the C4 goes off, the ball bearings shoot out at the enemy. And you got to figure, so a bullet goes 2,800 feet per second. These go like 20,000 feet per second, something crazy. So it can seem complex, but we put on the front of it three words, front toward enemy. And then on the back, we have one word. It says back. That's as simple as you keep it. Front toward enemy. So for me, it's actually turned in. Well, I have hoodies and stuff that say front toward enemy on the back. They say back. They say nice hoodie. I say, no, it's not a hoodie. It's an instruction manual as to how to wear a hoodie. And it became more of a life thing. If you have a problem in life, again, mastering the basics, how should I face it? Well, face the enemy, front toward enemy.
3: That's actually pretty good. Because obviously, for anybody who didn't understand that, they wouldn't have been around for the second practice. (laughs) Uh,
4: (laughs) Even get more complex. There's an army manual inside of it, and there's stuff like do's and don'ts, like a green circle and the red X. There's a picture of a guy laying down with a Claymore mine above his head that he put in a tree, and there's an X. And you start to think, wait a minute, so somebody probably did that. Now we need to tell you this is a bad idea.
3: That's right. So you also talk about learning from hobbies and then learning from sports, something which I really believe is very, very true, and we don't talk about enough. Tell us why you and Dakota thought that it was important to tell people about learning from sports and how that affects your life?
4: Well, I didn't realize it at the time I mentioned earlier, if you want to do something well, a thousand times, great, 10,000, excellent, a hundred thousand. I learned that from my father. He and I would play basketball. And one rule that we had, no matter how long, if we played two, three hours, two on two or five on five, whatever, we couldn't leave the gym until one of us made 20 free throws in a row. And we had the first rule was, you start with a make and then you shoot until you miss without, you know, like you do your routine, like three dribbles, backspin, shoot. You make it, you stay there, grab it, shoot, grab it, shoot, because you you're learning muscle memory. If you miss, you're out, next guy's in. And we would stay there. If it took another three hours, one of us needs to make 20 in a row. And we did it every night. When my season started, it would be 20 to get out of the gym and then 20 to have a steak at the Derby, which is an excellent steakhouse in Butte, Montana. So we would make 20. If we made 20, there you get the stake. But then the stake goes up by five. So now it's 20 and then 25. And then it's 20 and 30, 40. And we got to a point where my father made 91 free throws in a row, which is incredible. And that was the family record for about a week because then I made 105 in a row. But what we were learning there was just the muscle. Like even to this day, if I'm watching, like it's almost March Madness. When I'm watching the guy shoot a free throw and he makes the first and he leaves the free throw line to shake hands, like, dude, you made it. You're good. Stay there, make the second, then tell everyone how awesome you are. Get congratulated because you did what you're supposed to do. But I learned the muscle memory there, which is do everything like you do anything. Like anything you're good at, keep doing it that way. What am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? And again, master the basics and the rest will fall into line. So I think it's important to learn muscle memory with what you're doing. That comes with shooting, it comes with driving, but also the team effort. Like I played basketball, Dakota played football. I'll talk to football teams now about team. One thing that I tell people is, It goes along with getting over it. Like when the helicopter crashed in Bin Laden's house, and I didn't know the team was in there, but they opened the door. It doesn't matter why we're here, okay? We're just here. Now what? When I talk to football teams, I tell them, look, guys, it doesn't matter why it's second and 15. It just is. What do we do now? The clock's ticking. We can talk about it. Well, as opposed to saying we can talk about it if we live, we can talk about it in films. Stop arguing. You missed your assignment. Get over it. What do we do now?
3: I do notice... Correct me if I'm wrong, but you tend to emphasize more on building up your strength and focusing on the positive, not trying to get rid of the negative.
4: Focus on the positive, but you learn from the negative. I don't think you learn much from positive. You learn from failure. And it's okay to fail. It's okay to be afraid. That's where you learn. I haven't met a lot of people that said, yeah, nailed it on the first try. Here I am. I think it's important to, once you get something good, keep doing it that way. I mean, keep doing that way unless you come up with a more efficient way to do it, then keep doing it that way. I'm convinced I become a worse golfer the more I have an instructor teach me, but he's teaching me the right way, but now I need to do this a thousand times now. He's like, the way you hold the club, does it feel awkward? Yes, well, you're doing it right. Okay, I got to get used to this now. The worst thing I think you can say when you're running a team is, this is the way we've always done it. But you need to get to a point where you're not taking a shortcut Because shortcuts, like success causes complacency and complacency will get you killed. And I'll say in combat, people die because they get bored. You know, we used to do things a certain way and it would take a long, long time to get to our objective, but we're doing it that way because it's important and it's the safest way to do it. But if you start to cut it, well, you know, we can skip this step and get there. And I've seen it happen where... Instead of you know having the helicopter drop you off five kilometers away, you want them to drop you two, and now the enemy can hear you. We decided that five was the place to be. Now we do it too. Now everyone's awake, but you're not in place, and that's how it spirals. If someone comes up with a better way, fine, but keep following your rules. The rules are there for a reason. My wife works in the power line industry, and I'll talk to the linemen that get up on the poles and work with the power lines, and I'll say, You know, your boss he doesn't have you up here just so you can work 10-hour days, it's because this is the best way to do it. And I'll ask them. Now, when was the last time there was a fatality or a major injury? I guarantee at the job site, there was that big sign that says 500 days with, you know, incident free. And then someone gets hurt on 501 because, you know, they're up on the pole. And oh, I forgot my safety gloves, but it's going to take me 25 minutes to get down and 40 to get up. It's a quarter turn. I'll just knock that out. But you're still dealing with electricity.
3: One last thing. You talk in the book about childhood heroes. Who were your childhood heroes and what did you learn from them? My childhood
4: heroes, obviously my father, I talked to him this morning. We still talk. He's 74. and It's great because I can hear him pacing. We talk to each other still. The one I mentioned in the book was Michael Jordan, and that was the reason I got into basketball, just because I remember watching his documentary called Come Fly With Me. And this is, you know, VHS. If you had a VCR, you were rich. And my cousin let me watch it. The first scene is him alone in the gym dribbling a ball the greatest basketball player in the history. He wasn't at the time, but he was going to be. Just by the work ethic, how he was explaining how he's got to keep getting better, he's got to keep working, he's got to keep doing this. This is before Michael Jordan was MJ, you know, but, yeah, just growing up watching him. I remember I was mad at my father, who flew us, the four kids, from Montana to Orlando. And I was angry the entire flight because the Bulls had finally made it to the finals. This is game one against the Lakers, and I have to fly to Disney World. I'm complaining about that.
3: That's wild. Why do you think it's important for people in general to find heroes?
4: It's important to look up to people, but I also say don't ever meet your heroes because you're going to realize that we're all just people too. And it's okay to respect the way someone works, but I don't think you should elevate someone too high up there. But there's nothing wrong with finding someone who's successful in something that you love and not necessarily admiring them, but admiring what they did to get there. I think if that makes sense.
3: Yep. Makes a lot of sense. Listen, I want to thank you for joining me and thank you for your service to our country. You've done a remarkable amount for our national security and for our safety as Americans in the 17 years you served, and frankly since then, as you continue to serve in a new and different way. And I really think your candor about your service in the book is important for people to read, and certainly for the men and women of the military who return home from battle and may be struggling. I think it's an important book for them to read too. So I'm encouraging our listeners to pick up a copy of The Way Forward, Master Life's Toughest Battles and Create Your Lasting Legacy. It'll be on our show page with a link. And Rob, I'm really grateful to you as an American for what you've done for your country.
4: Well, Mr. Speaker, I appreciate you having me. And believe me, I thank you for what you've done for our country.
3: Thank you to my guest, Robert O'Neill. You get a link to buy his new book, The Way Forward, Master Life's Toughest Battles and Create Your Lasting Legacy. On our show page at newsworld.com. Newt World is produced by Gingrich360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.
1: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW for avoid. prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
5: We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race.
0: The Motor Racing Network. (laughs) NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville. Talladega. The Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finish. Ryan Blaney will win the voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network.